Well, if you're wondering if this sermon is going to be an hour long, it's not. <clears throat> you can relax and you can prepare to be uh, uh, thrilled, I, I hope, and trust and pray with the Word of God tonight. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 27, 62 to 66 is our text. Can you all hear me all right? Doesn't sound right. Something's not exactly right. Looking around. Toby, you doing something? All right. He's working on it. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Let's put this up for now. Go ahead and turn this one on and we'll get the other one going in a moment. And tonight I'm going to talk to you about what happened the next day after they buried Jesus. So I believe I'm on now. Mine now? I'll leave it either way. All right. So this text that is before us tonight, it's 62 to 66, the last section of Matthew 27, is unique in Matthew. No other gospel writers give us this text. And this text shows us Matthew's sense of humor. So this is very appropriate because we started this service with great joy, great unspeakable joy. I hope there were tears in your eyes and, and just the bursting of praise in your heart for what you witnessed in those seven baptisms. Hallelujah. That is the work of God in the lives of many people in all seasons of life. You heard the testimonies. They were wonderful. We started with joy and then we've, we've had our very sober, serious reflection on the death of Christ in the Lord's table and reflecting on what it cost for us to have a testimony, what it cost for us to proclaim that we're forgiven of our sins. And, but now we're going to try to end this service more like the way we started it, with a note of great joy. This passage really gives us Matthew's subtle sense of humor. And uh, once again, if you've been with us as we've gone through this great gospel, he's matter-of-fact, he's brief, he's concise, and once again, he is dripping with irony. Matthew's implied purpose, because in his narrative, he never tells you his explicit purpose, so it's simply implied, is this. He wants to refute the stolen body theory that is soon to come. But it's more than that. I think Matthew wants to give the Christian reader... Matthew wants to give the Christian reader... Turn this one off. There we go. Thank you, sir. He wants to give the Christian reader a humorous apologetic. He wants to give us a joyful defense of the resurrection. In fact, one commentator said, the laughter of God roars through this paragraph. My title tonight is The Securing of the Grave. And on my notes, I've got a little smiley face at the end. Let me read the text. Verse 62. Now, on the next day... The day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. So it's the next day. It's the next day after his burial, which was, I mean, his, uh, yes, his, his crucifixion and burial on Friday. It's the day after that. It means it's the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the day after the preparation. The preparation is for the Sabbath. And so now we're talking Saturday morning sometime, and the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. You see, Jesus causes a lot of meetings among the chief priests and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they show up once again. We haven't heard from them since chapter 23 when they got their scathing rebuke from the Lord 
the eight woes that were pronounced upon them. They have been, they have been off somewhere licking their wounds, and now here they are back once again with the chief priests representing the Sadducees, chief priests representing uh, the folks that didn't even believe in a resurrection, uh, the chief priests representing the other contingent of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, and here they are once again with another elders meeting gathered together with Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman Gentile Pontius Pilate, an unclean man, an unbeliever, a pagan, a, a man who believed in the pantheon of the Roman gods. And here are these men who claim to believe believers in the one true God of the Bible, the chief priests and the Pharisees, and now they're once again having uh, communion, if you will, and fellowship with Pilate. Verse 63, and they said, sir, it's actually the word curios, Lord. You remember that time they told Jesus, we have no king but Caesar. Here they now speak to a representative of Caesar and call him Lord. You'll call anybody Lord if you don't call Jesus Lord. We remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure. That's the first mention. Until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Pat yourselves on the back. <laughs> well done. You have secured the grave. Brings me to my text idea. Matthew recorded this passage, the securing of the grave by the Jews and the Romans to prevent a resurrection deception by the disciples. That's why this is here. That's a summary of this text in one sentence. Sermon idea then is this. The securing of the grave by unbelievers serves as a joyful defense of the resurrection for believers. My sermon goals tonight are twofold. It's to bolster your faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, if you haven't already, to make you smile. That's my sermon goal. The securing of the grave then serves as a joyful defense of the resurrection in two ways. Number one, the securing of the grave was initiated. It was initiated by the sworn enemies of Jesus. This is verse 62 to 64. So as we think about a joyful defense of the resurrection, we think about they tried to secure this grave in which he was buried. We need to, first of all, recognize that this whole operation was initiated by people that hate him to the core. They were his sworn enemies. So we look at verse 62 again, chief priests and Pharisees, and we're like, they're back. <laughs> it's just like COVID. It just won't go away completely. <laughs> they're like AOC stirring up foolishness once again. <laughs> this is what entrenched pride and hatred does. It shows you how far unbelief will go. It's the Sabbath, and they can't rest because they can remember. And ironically, they remember that he said he would rise from the dead after three days. They remember, but the disciples seem to have forgotten. Here are the enemies of Christ, restless on the Sabbath, because they remember. 
It may have been when he said, uh, he talked about Jonah, the son of man being in the, uh, like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, and the son of man being in the belly of the earth uh, for three days. They may be remembering that. They, they may be remembering John 2, verse 19, where uh, he talked about destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And they didn't know what he was talking about at the time, but they may be thinking about that now. Or it may be that he made this prediction at least three times in private to his disciples, and they told somebody else who told somebody else, and now they've gotten word. Hey, that deceiver said he was going to rise again on the third day. They, they've, they remember, and they're concerned. They're concerned about a conspiracy theory that will be hatched by these desperate disciples. Now, Matthew is anticipating something here. Matthew is anticipating what he's going to write over in chapter 28. He's anticipating a theory that's going to be hatched to try to explain the resurrection, of course. And so we're going to just jump ahead of the resurrection here for a few moments and look at 28, 11 to 15. Go ahead and cover this now because it really fits hand in glove with our passage tonight. So jump over and look at verse 28. See, what Matthew is doing in chapter 27, 62 to 66 is a preemptive strike, anticipating the foolish, ridiculous lie that is coming. So if we jump over to 28.11, now while they were on their way, the two Marys on their way to witness about the resurrection, which we'll talk about Sunday morning, of course, some of the guard who were guarding that tomb, they came into the city, Jerusalem, and they reported to the chief priests all that had happened. So the guards wake up and they find that the tomb is empty, that there's no body and that there's no angel. The angel had shown up and the earthquake had happened and they had fainted scared to death, and they passed out cold there on the ground, and now they've, they've awakened, and, and they've discovered what they've discovered, and they're terrified, and some of them gathered enough courage to go and report this to the chief priest. You notice they didn't go to Pilate. They go to the chief priest to make this report. Verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, I'm telling you, Jesus causes a lot of meetings they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you are to say. His disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. So here's another consultation of the sworn enemies of Jesus, now on the other side of the resurrection. And now, isn't this ironic? I told you every word drips with irony. They are desperately going to hatch the very hoax that they were trying to prevent. Verse 14, and if this should come to the governor's ears, Pilate, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Well, for these soldiers, this is a deal deal too good to be true. A deal they cannot pass up. They just became temporarily wealthy. They can go on about their life. Pilate may never know about this. Pilate's going to go back to Caesarea as as soon as the feast is over. He may never know a thing. And they're thinking, whew, this is awesome. What a deal. We'll take it. Verse 15, they took the money. There's a large sum of money. They did as they had been instructed. And this story, the story that the disciples came at night while they were asleep and stole the body of Jesus, this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. In other words, as Matthew was writing this 30 years later, that was still the story. And now 2,000 years later, it's still the story for some. It's one of the three theories that unbelievers hold about what happened to the body of Jesus. That the disciples came and stole him away. But like so many foolish 
conspiracy theories, this one is laughable, illogical, and impossible. It actually takes more faith to believe this than it does to believe that God raises someone from the dead. Why is the stolen body theory such a complete joke? Five reasons. Number one, no Roman guard would ever admit to sleeping on the job. That could possibly mean the end of their life. You remember the Philippian jailer when he thought all the people had escaped and he was about to kill himself? Because that's what happens if you do not do your job as a Roman soldier slash guard. They would never admit to this. This is why they went to the chief priests and not to Pilate. Number two, if they were asleep, how do they know what happened? That's a problem. Number three, we might allow for one of them to have fallen asleep, but all of them at the same time? No, not happening. Do you think a troop of Navy SEALs guarding something that all of them would fall asleep at the same time? Number four, the disciples are in no psychological condition whatsoever to make a raid on this tomb and steal this body. The, the, the disciples are hiding in fear. The disciples are battling doubts. The disciples are in the wind. They're nowhere to be seen. They're nowhere near that tomb. Why would they risk their lives for a dead man? They wouldn't do that while he was alive. Why would they do it now? What are they going to do? Hey, Peter, throw your net on them. <laughs> I mean, what are these guys going to do with Roman soldiers guarding this tomb with a three-foot-high, two-foot-wide door to it? They weren't going to risk their lives for someone who's dead. Number five, how do you explain that the apostles proclaim the resurrection unapologetically, fearlessly, courageously, if they have no proof. What fool is crucified upside down for a hoax? No one. And that's what happened to Peter. He was crucified upside down. So you don't do that unless you have eyewitness proof that this man was raised from the dead. You see, the sad reality is, for many people, it is easier to believe a lie than it is to believe the truth. Because the lie does not make any demands on your life. The lie does not say, that's sin and you need to turn away from it, like we heard in these testimonies. A lie lets you go on in your life the way you want to live, Lord of your life, commander of your destiny, doing whatever you want to do as sheep going their own way. But if Jesus is raised from the dead, now that's going to start making some demands on your life. That's going to start causing you to rethink everything. And this is why unbelievers refuse to deal with the reality of the Bible and the reality of the truth. Because it's so much easier to just live comfortably in your sin and comfortably in a lie. The first reason I want you to see tonight, the first joyful defense of the resurrection is that the securing of the grave of Jesus was initiated by the sworn enemies of Jesus. In other words, there was no one more motivated to secure this tomb than these people. 
they have everything to lose if a Jesus movement takes off. And they have everything to gain if he stays put where they put him. Their income, their reputation, their honor, their power, their control of the people, their lifestyle, everything that was their part and parcel of their identity is at stake depending on what happens with this man in this tomb. And so if some crazy, you know, Jesus movement takes off based on some hoax of a body being stolen, they have everything to lose. And so they initiate this securing. That brings us to number two. Number two, the securing of the tomb was carried out with utmost effort and care. This is verses 65 and 66. See, Pilate agrees with them. He's ready to be, uh, have this behind him himself as well. And 65 and 66 show us the care that was taken. They asked Pilate to give orders that this uh, deception would not be, you know, worse than the first. The first deception is he claimed to be king. Uh, what would be worse than that is he claimed to be king who was killed and then rose from the dead. Pilate said to them, verse 65, you have a guard. The word guard there is a loan word from Latin, which means he's giving them a Roman guard, a company of Roman soldiers. He's saying to them, you have a guard. I'm here, here, you have a guard. Now, go and make it as secure as you know how. Isn't that interesting words? Isn't that interesting language? He doesn't say, go make it secure. He doesn't go say, go lock that thing down. He says, go make it as secure as you know how. Interesting. He's basically telling them, you have my full authority to secure the tomb. Now, somebody that's really smart, paying attention, might just call time out right here and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I just found the loophole. He was buried on Friday before sundown because they were rushing to be done before Passover, I mean before Sabbath. And now it is Saturday, so the tomb was unsealed and the tomb was unguarded on Friday night. There's the window of opportunity for the disciples to come and steal the body. The tomb had a few hours where it was un, unguarded and unsealed. Well, there's a simple solution to this so-called problem, the so-called dilemma. A simple apologetic solution. You have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. What do you think is the first thing they're going to do when they show up to that tomb? They're going to make sure that body is in that tomb because their life depends on it. If that body is not in their tomb and they find that out later, these guys are dead. That's the first thing they're going to do so that they're not any surprises. You know who else is going to make sure? Because who went with them? Who, who requested the guard? The religious leaders, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Who went with them to the tomb? Who else is going to make sure that that body is still in there? They will be. No question. The religious leaders would have checked. The guards would have checked. The guards' lives are on the line. For the re religious leaders, their lifestyle is on the line. Trust me, they checked. This tomb is on Fort Knox lockdown. It's hewn out of solid rock, so there's no other access. It's like a bank vault. It's got a massive six-foot diameter stone wheel that serves as the vault door to this bank vault. You've got Roman soldiers who will be executed if they fail to guard. You've got 
even a timing standpoint of safekeeping. They make the request on Saturday so that they will have guard Saturday, Sunday, and into Monday. We want a day of cushion here even to guard this tomb. And then finally, they put an official seal on the tomb. Two possibilities of what this would have been. So you've got the the big wheel that rolls in front of the door, sets in place. They could have either put a seal on the front of that stone of wax or clay, and then they're going to press into it the Roman seal. And then they would have had cords that would have attached to the seal and would have gone from the stone itself to the tomb, to the facade of the tomb, a cord that would then obviously show that if someone tried to tamper with it, it would have be broken, the seal would be broken. So it's a, a way to detect and deter, you know, tampering of the tomb. Another possibility is the wheel is really close to the facade and they just took a big hunk of, of soft wax or clay and they crammed it down in that crack. And then they put the Roman seal in it there. Either way, it's still going to serve the same purpose. It's a practical deterrent because any kind of messing with it would be detected, but it's also something even really beyond that. Because they're going to press into that. They're going to stamp into that soft wax some type of seal representing the Roman Empire. What they're going to do then in this whole symbolic moment between the seal and the soldiers is basically announce to everyone the imperial authority of Caesar resides over this tomb. It's almost like these two things together. The seal and the soldiers are like an official edict. It might go like this. Hear ye, hear ye. By the authority of the great Roman Empire and her exalted emperor, Lord Caesar Tiberius, this tomb is under Roman authority and shall not be tampered with, nor the contents disturbed in any way under penalty of death. That's the message. The greatest power known to mankind, the greatest power in the history of the world up to this point in world history, the Roman Empire has claimed this tomb for itself and says no one can touch this, no one can mess with this. Our authority rests over it. Between the seal and the soldiers, stealing the body just became impossible. Impossible. Stealing the body is a sure death wish by anyone who would try such a foolhardy and foolish thing. Look at verse 66. Don't you know that Matthew had a smile on his face when he wrote verse 66? <laughs> Don't you think he might have even been laughing when he wrote, oh, i got to stop, i got to stop, i got to stop. That means i got to finish this sentence. <laughs> and they went... And they made the grave secure. Oh, God, i got to stop. That's just too funny. That's hilarious. And along with the guard, they set a seal. You remember, he's writing this 30 years later. He's writing this 30 years later, and Christianity has exploded in the Roman Empire. There are Christians everywhere preaching the resurrection of Christ. But he's got to go back and give an accurate history. Got to give an accurate account. Oh, yeah, they made the grave secure. How can our faith in the resurrection not be strengthened? How can your faith tonight in the resurrection of Jesus Christ not be strengthened? How can we not laugh at what was the most futile attempt in all of human history? 
the most vain, futile, ridiculous attempt to do anything in human history. Are you kidding me? You're going to secure the grave of the Lord Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, may our faith in the resurrection be bolstered tonight by this joyful apologetic that is simply illogical and laughable and impossible that the body of Jesus was stolen by his fearful, trembling disciples. Lord, may our joy be increased tonight as we laugh along with Matthew in this futile attempt of this great world power to stop your power. What a joke. Lord, I know you had to be sitting in the heavens and laughing. I even think of Psalm 2. Even think of Psalm 2, Lord, how you scoff at the schemes of the nations. Why are the nations in an uproar? The Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. We rejoice tonight in your great power that no seal, no cord, no stone, no soldier, no pilot, no Caesar, no empire, no thousands upon thousands of soldiers could have kept from happening what was going to happen within 36 hours of our Savior going into that tomb. Lord, we rejoice tonight that the grave is conquered. We rejoice tonight that Sunday morning is coming. Sunday is coming, and we're going to come back to this place and lift our voices in praise and celebration because that tomb was empty. And it's still empty 2,000 years later. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.